Please turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. As you're turning there, we are working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, and this chapter has been full of the parables of Jesus, many of them quite familiar perhaps to many of us, and we are in the last week on this chapter today. As has been happening for several weeks now, we are going to break the passage up into different parts, so we're not going to go straight through the text. We're going to break it up uh, in order to fit some pieces together a little bit more easily. We're going to read uh, Matthew 13, verses 31 to 33, and let, let me just go ahead and give you the points of the message now, and uh, for those who, those who are interested in writing some of this down, I'll just give it to you right now, the three points, and if you want to write it down more simply, you can just write, the kingdom of heaven has, and then... All three points have that as the beginning. So the kingdom of heaven has, and then three points. Uh, The kingdom of heaven has, number one, small beginnings, verses 31 to 33, small beginnings. Number two, the kingdom of heaven has infinite worth, verses 44 to 46, infinite worth, 44 to 46. And then number three, the kingdom of heaven has often been too easily rejected, verses 53 to 58, the end of our chapter before us. So I'm going to read those sections for us, and this is the word of the Lord, Matthew 13, starting in verse 31. He put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Skip with me to verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Verse 53, and when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, I do ask for your divine illumination by your Spirit as we look today at this passage. Uh, Show us, as Scott said, what is really in this text, Lord. Uh, I pray that we would see what is here, that all of us would be rightly challenged by what we see here, encouraged by what we see here, and I pray that we would leave today uh, clinging to the Lord Jesus uh, as our hope and as our bottomless treasure. And so, Lord, be at work even now through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, throughout this chapter, and really throughout the book of Matthew, Jesus is redefining what the kingdom of God was going to look like against popular expectations. And one of the things that has been so shocking throughout this chapter is the kingdom is coming at first quite slowly. 
even seemingly insignificantly at first, it starts as a small seed or as a little bit of leaven that permeates over time. So let's reread the opening of our text, uh, verses 31 to 33. Again, our first point is that the kingdom of heaven has small beginnings. Verse 33, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Well, the metaphor is easy enough. You start off with something seemingly utterly insignificant, this tiny seed you can barely see in the palm of the hand, this tiny little seed, and you plant it, and lo and behold, it becomes larger than the other garden plants. It could become a tree up to 9, 10, even 12 feet tall, big enough to even hold birds that would come and nest in its branches. Jesus' point is very clear, and I'll tell you, don't let this be a discouragement. Let this be an encouragement. So often, this is going to be true in our lives, God begins His work so often things look and appear quite small. Do they not? So often God's work seems very small. It might be sharing Scripture with your young child over the breakfast table. It might feel very small. It might be sharing the gospel with a stranger or a coworker. It might be talking to someone about Christ and you just feel like, this is going, going to go to nowhere. It's just me talking. I feel so weak. I feel so helpless. I feel like I cannot do anything to change the human heart. I'm just sitting here saying things, and yet you pray and you say, Lord, I am weak. I am insufficient. I mean, even Paul, can we just take a moment and appreciate the fact that Paul felt insignificant and insufficient when he says, who is sufficient for these things? He says, our sufficiency comes from God. It comes through Christ. Even the great apostle Paul says, I am not sufficient in myself to claim as anything coming from me. I'm not the source of the growth. I plant Apollos waters and nothing happens if God does not give the growth, the, growth, the increase. So Paul says, look, we plant and it may feel really small. It may feel very unpromising and yet God's word does not return void. It always accomplishes what God has planned for it. But here's the deal. Israel was not prepared, the majority at the time, they were not prepared to receive this message. They wanted a kingdom that came with holy violence against the Romans. They wanted a kingdom that was a David against Goliath. They wanted a kingdom that was going to change the political system for Israel right here, right now, and give us back our socioeconomic freedom. That's what they wanted. They wanted the kingdom to come with a violent a holy bang. But instead, Jesus says, the kingdom is in your midst right now. And they're looking at Jesus going, okay, let's just be honest here. Let's think about it from their perspective, okay? They don't know Jesus as the divine son of God. I mean, they had evidence, but they were suppressing the evidence. So in their mind, they're thinking, okay, I've got this man from Galilee, this essentially peasant walking around who has 12 followers. They're not exactly the elite of the elite. These are not the most educated. They're not the most wealthy. In fact, none of those things is true of them. You've got some poor fishermen from Galilee. You've got some unpromising other individuals in the mix. You're telling me this is the kingdom of God coming right now. You've got 12 unpromising individuals and some sort of charismatic leader named Jesus of Nazareth coming from this backwoods city. No one really thinks anything good can come from Nazareth. You're telling me this is the kingdom of God breaking into the world. It looked in some sense absurd to people's eyes. They were not ready for that to be how God's kingdom would make its entryway. So I thought about this a little bit, and my math, I, 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 just, I am not a Roman scholar like I would like to be. I, I was just Googling, trying to find numbers, okay? I was just trying to Google to try to figure out numbers. So if you're a scholar of the Roman world, you may know the numbers better than I do, but from the best I could figure out using just Google online, uh, they estimate 
numbers vary dramatically, that's why I'm saying this, but let's, let's just give a conservative estimate. Yeah, let's say 50 million people in the Roman Empire around the time of Christ. I know that may be off by a few million, but let's just say 50 million people or so at the time within the full Roman Empire. By the time Jesus has been crucified and raised to new life, and he's gathered them, you remember the upper room, and he's encouraged them who are there, and he appears to his brother, James, who's mentioned in this text, and Jude, who would write the book of Jude. Jesus has gone back to heaven, wait a few more days for the coming of the Spirit. How many people, you remember, are in the upper room at the beginning of Acts chapter 1? Do you remember? A hundred and twenty. Now, I'm not saying those are the only followers of Jesus on earth. There might have still been some in other parts of the area, maybe some in Galilee and whatnot. I mean, we know he appeared to over 500 at one time, so there's more than just that. But let's just start with the 120. Is that a pretty unpromising beginning for a worldwide disciple-making movement? I mean, just doing the math here, 120, 50 million people, that means they were outnumbered 1 to 400,000 in the Roman Empire. I mean, they got 120 versus 50 million. When you do the math, you're outnumbered 400,000 to one. The Romans are not quaking in their boots, scared of the Christian mission at this point. They are not afraid. They've killed the leader. They, they thought they've gotten rid of him, and they are ready. It's just over as far as they're concerned. This is going nowhere. Is this the tiniest seed you can possibly imagine in the hand of the gardener, this movement? And does God plant that little movement in the ground, in the soil, in Jerusalem? And does something begin to grow? 50 days, Pentecost, 50 days after the death of Jesus, Peter, who, by the way, denied his Lord 50 days earlier that he even knew him three times, once in front of a servant girl outside of the house of Caiaphas, he's repented, he's been restored, he's met the risen Jesus personally. Can you imagine that encounter? And Peter stands up, and for the first time in his life, he is full of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit makes all the difference because the Holy Spirit gives boldness, a holy boldness. And Peter looks at the crowds in the temple precincts, very likely is where they are, where all these crowds are gathered, thousands of people, many of the same people who are in the crowd crying out for crucifixion 50 days earlier. What does Peter say? He preaches the Old Testament. He shows how the Davidic king is pointing towards Jesus and that the resurrection is foreshadowed in the Old Testament, like in Psalm 16, you will not abandon me to the grave, you will, let the, you will not let your Holy One see corruption, you will show him the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. David was not ultimately speaking about David, he was speaking about his ultimate son, the son of David who would not be abandoned to the grave, but be resurrected to God's right hand. The Davidic king is reigning right now in power at God's right hand, and guess what? He says, you, in this crowd, you called for his crucifixion, you murdered the Son of God. What kind of holy boldness is this? And what happens? The crowd, instead of turning against him, as they would do to Stephen later, which you, you could expect, it says the crowd was cut to the heart, and they said, brothers, what must we do to be saved? What, what, are we, what are we supposed to do? And Peter says, repent, believe in Jesus, identify with him publicly through baptism, you'll be forgiven of your sins, you'll, you'll stand right before God, and this promise is for all who will turn and trust in Christ. And what happens? 3,000 people are converted on the spot. A few months later, it's 5,000. Not many months later, it's up to 10,000 people in Jerusalem. And then Stephen is killed, and it forces all these Christians to go everywhere because they can't stay in Jerusalem for the sake of survival. They go everywhere. And what does the book of Acts tell us? Chapter 8, they go to Samaria. Philip goes. He preaches the gospel of Samaria. People are radically converted. John uh, comes up from Jerusalem and Peter. They lay hands. The Spirit is given to the Samaritans. They go up north to Damascus and beyond. In Syrian Antioch, many are converted to Christ. And what starts happening is 
a movement has begun. The Apostle Paul, who's trying to stop the Christians and kill them, is radically converted on the Damascus Road to imprison Christians. He's full of the Spirit of God, and what does he do? He begins preaching the very Christ he was persecuting. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you're persecuting, and I'm going to show you. Go into the city. I'm going to show you how much you're about to suffer for my namesake, and you're going to take my name to the Gentiles, the peoples who've never heard of me. They're going to hear through you. And Paul goes on his first missionary journey from Syria and Antioch around through numerous cities, Lystra and Derbe and Iconium and other places. And then he goes on another missionary journey further out into the Roman Empire. And then he goes on another missionary journey, ends up ultimately out in the city of Rome. And the book of Acts ends with Paul under house arrest in Rome, the capital of the empire, preaching Jesus with no one stopping him for two solid years. Has the smallest seed begun to sprout and grow through the Roman Empire? Now, just think about this for a second. Again, I just looking this up just to refresh my mind here. I am not saying that everything Constantine did was good, <laughs> okay? I, I've got plenty of criticisms of Constantine in the 300s, but let me make a point. We often give only the bad rap to Constantine. Can I make a positive point here about what happened in the three and 400s in, in Rome? Just think, think about this from Paul's perspective, from the perspective of the early Christians. This would have been beyond the wildest imaginings. Can you imagine? Paul, who is killed by the Roman emperor around 67 AD by Nero, and Peter, who's probably crucified uh, also as well. Can you imagine them hearing this fact? In just a few centuries, a Roman emperor will profess faith in Christ. Can you imagine that thought in their mind? And then imagine this. In AD 312, uh, Constantine professes faith. In AD 380, the emperor, Theodosius, issued the Edict of Thessalonica, which made Christianity, specifically Nicene Christianity, the official religion of the Roman Empire, then worshiping the Roman gods was outlawed in AD 392. Okay, I'm not saying I agree with how all that was done. I'm just making the point, isn't that amazing? 120 people gathered in an upper room, scared for their lives. You flash forward less than 400 years, Christianity is the official religion of the Roman Empire, and now worshiping the Roman gods is outlawed. That is an astonishing thing. So hear me on this. What you feel in your life is small and insignificant. It's not if it's done for Jesus. What feels so small, can I give you another picture of small? Paul, he's making his way on one of his missionary journeys. The Holy Spirit gives divine illumination in a dream. He sees a man from Macedonia saying, come and help us. He wakes up in the morning and says, the Lord is directing us to Macedonia. So they leave the region that they're in. They make it, I don't know, this is hundreds of miles. They get to Macedonia. The first city that they show up in is Philippi. Remember the scene in Acts 16? What happens? They're expecting probably some grand welcome. I mean, imagine you have a dream where God tells you to go there, okay? Divine revelation in that first century from the Lord. He shows up expecting probably some amazing dramatic thing. And what happens? He finds not even a Jewish synagogue. He finds a small group of Jewish women who are praying on the Sabbath. And Paul begins to preach Jesus. And again, it looks very small. And yet the Lord grabbed Lydia's heart, the seller of purple goods, Lydia of Thyatira. The Lord opened her heart to pay heed to Paul's message. She's converted. She's baptized. The Philippian church is born. The Philippian jailer is converted soon afterwards. And you have this mismatched group of people joined together in Philippi. And is God now setting up a base in Philippi? And then Thessalonica and on it goes. God works through what seems very small to bring about great results over time. And we've got to trust him in that. Listen, the part that we play we're not going to see the end result of what we're going to do with our lives. 
I know it's an old illustration, you, know, you, th- you throw the rock into the middle of the still pond, and it takes time, but the ripples reach to the edge of the pond. Your life and the, word, the kind word you say, the encouragement you give, the fact that you were in God's word the night before work to say tomorrow, you're in God's word, you, 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 your heart is revived in his presence, you go to work, and the irritability has been removed by God's grace, there's a joy in your countenance, there's a peace in your countenance, there's a prayerful attitude you have at work, and you're able to love people better than you would have otherwise, can the Lord use the smallest things like that to make great differences in this world? You better believe it. In fact, I'm counting on that. Not one cup of cold water given in the name of Christ will ever lose its reward. So let us remember, although it starts small, it becomes big. This is something, some of you probably heard this before, I'm just going to read a long quote here from, it's an anonymous, we don't really know for sure who wrote it, let's read sections of it, listen to this, talking about Jesus, a small seed that blossoms, listen to this, he was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant, he grew up in another village where he worked as a carpenter until he was 30, then for three years he was an itinerant preacher, he never wrote a book, he never held an office, he never had a family or owned a home. He didn't go to college. He never lived in a big city. He never traveled too far from the place where he was born. He did none of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his garments, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Twenty centuries have come and gone. And today, he is the central figure of the human race. I am well within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned put together together, have not affected the life of man on this earth as much as that one solitary life is what started that looks so small. Has it come to blossom into a tree in which the The birds of the air can nest in the branches. Absolutely, absolutely it has. Verse 33, I don't want to miss this verse. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. I'll just say briefly, normally leaven is used as a negative metaphor in the Bible. Normally it's the leaven of sin. But it doesn't have to be negative. And all the point Jesus is making here is what does leaven do? It affects the whole batch. You put a little leaven in, and over time, it affects the whole thing. And so the point here is this. As the kingdom begins to take root, is it going to have a wide, world-reaching impact and effect? Yes, it is. So it's a similar idea. Let's move to point number two. So the kingdom of heaven has small beginnings. Now the kingdom of heaven has infinite worth. Verses 44 to 46. I, I love these parables. Let me read verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Commentators talk about how at this point in human history, uh, they didn't have banks, at least not in the way we do now. Let's just say you wouldn't want to entrust all your riches necessarily to a bank in the first century. Let's put it that way. And so what people often did was they would take their money literally, maybe put it in some kind of container, and they would literally just go out in their yard, their field somewhere in the farmland. They'd find a place no one would look for, dig a hole, and bury their treasure. Remember in the parable of the talents, the one that's not, that wasn't supposed to bury it, what did he do? He buried it, which was his way of saying, at least I'll preserve it, but I'm not going to invest it, which was bad. But you see how burying treasure was a common thing to preserve your valuables. And so what happens here? There's a man, he may have been working in a field, he might have been walking through a field. Somehow or another, 
he stumbles upon something sticking up out of the ground. And he looks at it, and he gets a little closer, and he begins digging around it with his hands, perhaps, and he's digging, and he's digging, and he's, his fingers might start bleeding at a certain point. He's saying, I, I, this looks important. He digs further down, and he, gets, he sees there's a box of some kind. He's digging, digging, he's starting to sweat. He opens up enough, he can see that there's a, a, a large chest of some kind. He opens it up, he looks inside. Astonishingly, someone's life savings, someone's lifelong treasure is sitting here. Gold coins and jewels and pearls and diamonds, whoever, whatever all it might be, is in there. This is unbelievable. It's absolutely a once in a lifetime, once in a thousand lifetime situation. So, what does he do? Jesus doesn't comment on the morality of the man's actions here. Uh, you, could, you could argue one way or another on how he does this, but he covers it back up. There was a Jewish law that said if you're working for a farmer and you take something out of the ground, once you've removed it from the ground, it is now the farmer's. It's not yours, it's the farmer's because he owns what you dig up. But if you find something and you don't take it out of the ground, it could technically still be yours. So we don't know how this man is trying to think, but he thinks, you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking I want this treasure. And so this guy says, he, I'm going to carefully cover it back up. So he takes all the dirt, covers it back up, tries to get it as, as good as he can. I don't know what all he does. He doesn't want anyone to see that there's been any activity here. He covers it up and he takes off. And what does he do? The, the Greek here is amazing. The ESV says in his joy, and that's fine. But, but the, literally the word is apa. It's the word from joy. From joy, he goes and sells all he has and buys the field. This is an amazing parable of what it means to become a Christian and what it means to understand the value of the kingdom which is the same thing. When the value of Jesus, the king, and the kingdom comes home to you, and you see it for what it is, and you're willing from joy to give up anything to have Jesus, that's how you become a Christian. That's what conversion is. I think it's a beautiful picture of biblical conversion. So what happens? The man covers up everything, and it doesn't say, from duty, he goes and sells all he has and buys the field. It doesn't even say he, you know, he thought about it, from joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Why would he, with joy, give up all of his belongings? We know the answer, but just think about it for a second. This man, with joy, is getting rid of everything he owns. Why? He's selling, you know, he's got some lifelong heirloom in the family. He says, I don't care, I'm selling that thing. Everything he's got, he's selling it. There's no sentimentality on this guy. He sells 100% of what he's got. His house, his property, all the things he's got, all of his goods. He sells everything instantaneously with joy. There's no sense of sacrifice. And someone, his neighbor might be looking at this guy going, what's wrong with him? What's gotten into this guy? Why is he doing this? They don't know the secret. The secret is he has found something that in his eyes, in his heart, is far, far more valuable than what he's giving up. Now, now hear me on this. Becoming a Christian is going to involve losing things. We don't like that. But favorite sins have got to go. There's no more holding on to the old way of life. You are going to lose big time when you become a Christian. You're going to give up a lot of things. And it's going to be misery unless you and I see Jesus and the kingdom and his treasure as being more valuable and more glorious than what we are giving up in the process. So think about it. Take your favorite thing outside of Jesus or maybe your favorite sin that you've struggled with, something that your flesh goes back to. You take that thing and you compare that wicked pleasure to the glory and joy of knowing Jesus and the, the, the meaning and fullness that he's just filled your life with since you've known him. You compare the two on a scale and you say, this is, not even a, this is not even a question in my mind. When it comes down to it, 
I will easily exchange all this world has to offer in order to get more of the Lord Jesus. In Sunday school, we just read this text, but Paul says this. Paul says, whatever gain I had, I counted as what? Loss for the sake of Christ. This is almost his paraphrase of this parable, right? This is Paul's version of this parable. Whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth and value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Well, I was watching on YouTube some Antiques Roadshow highlights. Don't judge me for this, okay? Y'all remember the Antiques Roadshow? It's been a minute since we've, I don't know, but when I was younger, we used to watch that sometimes. But I went on YouTube and I was looking at some Antiques Roadshow uh, uh, highlights. I'm, I'm unashamed right now of that, only a little bit. But uh, I'll, I'll tell you about one. I'm going to tell you about one. This older gentleman brought in a blanket. And uh, he's got it there. It's an old blanket. It's been in his family for uh, gener- for, for decades. And uh, the man who's the appraiser for this blanket says, you saw my look, is it, you saw my face when I looked at this when you brought it in. He said, I about died when you came in with this thing. He said, I, I couldn't believe it. And the older guy's like, oh, okay, this is, this is good. I don't know why you're so excited. And he says, okay, this is a Navajo chief's blanket dating back to the 1840s to 1860. I think they called it a Ute first phase wearing blanket. I don't know what that means, but if you know what that means, he said, he goes, this is really special. He says, in fact, uh, I I wrote down what they said. So the the appraiser said, quote, you may have noticed when you brought it in, I almost stopped breathing. It's the most important thing that's come into the roadshow that I've seen. Do you have any sense at all of what we're looking at in terms of value? The older guy says, I haven't a clue. But he's starting to get a little flummoxed. He's like, where's this going here? I haven't a clue. And then the appraiser says, are you a wealthy man? He says, no. No. On a really bad day, this textile would be worth $350,000. On a good day, half a million dollars. By the way, they've they've updated it again. It's now worth $750,000 to a million dollars, the same one. When the man hears it, he gasps. He says, I had no idea it was laying on the back of a chair in my house, just laying on the back of a chair for 30 years, just sitting there in my living room on the back of a chair, uh, laying there. And then the appraiser says, well, sir, you have a national treasure. And the man says, wow, I can't believe this. And then suddenly tears just start coming out. He takes his glasses off. He's wiping tears. He says, I can't believe it. I'm amazed. Uh, He says, I'm flabbergasted, is what the older man says. What happened in that? I looked at the comments section, which is dangerous online, and I looked through the comments, and numerous people said they got choked up watching it. And they had tears in their eyes watching this. What what, what is going on here? What what is happening? Here's, Here's what's happening. This man knew that he thought it might be worth $1,000, right? That's what he thought. And on the best day, he's thinking this may be a $500, you know, old sort of blanket. When he finds out the value, what happened? See, the value of that blanket, the Navajo chief blanket, it didn't change between when that guy was outside in the parking lot with it to when he came into the appraiser. Nothing changed about it. In fact, the only thing that changed was the perception of the owner about the blanket. When he walked in, he thought, eh, I'll go check and see if it's worth anything. Maybe it's worth a few hundred dollars. By the time he left, he realized that the blanket that he had casually on the back of a couch in his house is worth more than his house. Okay, that, that's, that's, that's what happened. It went from just this blanket on the back of the sofa to suddenly it's worth more than my house. And he says, I'm not a very wealthy man. He actually says, We're, our whole family is poor farmers. And he says, what just happened is he's, he's tearing up, he's moved, he's emotional. What happened? What happened was is he thought what he had was not valuable 
And he becomes staggered when he realizes how valuable the treasure was that he was holding right in front of him his whole life and not knowing what it was all about. And again, the appraiser calls it a national treasure. For many of us, this is our story of becoming a Christian. Isn't it? For a lot of us, we grew up and Jesus was part of our life. I mean, church was part of our life. We knew Bible stories and Jesus was important. He was on the back of the sofa. He's there. You know, you got, you got, Jesus is part of your life. He's part of, it's important. It, it means something to me. And then biblical conversion happened. It may have happened in a moment. It may have been a process. I believe you get saved in a moment, but you don't always know when. And it could take place over months. It could take place in a second. But here's what happened. If you are a true born-again Christian, your perception of the worth of Jesus changed. Jesus didn't change. He was priceless all along. But we did not know the treasure that we had in our Bible, in, in Christ, in the gospel. We took it for granted. We took it casually. And all of a sudden, for me it was when I was 16, I don't know when it was in your life, all of a sudden your heart opened up to Jesus and you began to see He is worth everything. I, I would give up anything to have Him, to have more of Him, to be satisfied by Him. I mean, I went from a 16-year-old who hated reading in any kind or any fashion. I could barely, like, if I had to read in class, I was always embarrassed because I could mispronounce half the words. I, I, I was not a good reader. I, didn't, I hated reading. All of a sudden, I wanted to be in the Bible. I was compelled. I can remember one day in the fall of 2003, in my Spanish class, which I wasn't supposed to be doing this, behind my Spanish textbook, I had my Bible. I, I was under my desk. I had my Bible. I was reading Philippians in my Spanish class. I could not get enough. Suddenly, God's Word was doing something inside of me. I would go home, and I wanted to soak in God's Word because God's Word was interacting with me. It was doing something to me. It was transforming me. My desires were starting to change. All of a sudden, I wanted to talk to God about the stuff going on in my life. I would just go take a 30-minute walk and just talk to God about my day. I would get back into my room, and I'd get coffee, and I'd be in the book of Acts, or I'd be in uh, whatever New Testament letter, and I'd be working through it, and I would, be, I would be stirred by what I was reading. And what was happening was this. For the first time in my life, what I casually knew all my life mattered suddenly had relevance to me in a very real way, and it was because my eyes, by God's grace, were being opened to the value and beauty of Jesus, and all of a sudden, I'm going, I've got a treasure here. I, I, I've got treasure here. I, I, I would, whatever it takes to get more of this, that is what I want, and that is what I want to do. When the, when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, remember, what must I do to inherit the kingdom? Jesus says, well, how about the commandments? He's testing him on his self-righteousness. The guy's like, I got 10 commandments, got that covered. You're like, oh man, okay. And Jesus goes, well, one thing you still lack. I can almost see a, a Jesus looking at him in a certain way. One thing you still lack. And what does Jesus say? How about the first commandment? Are you really only devoted to the true God? Let me test that. You've got a lot of money. Are you willing to give up all of that in order to have me and be a disciple and to follow me? And it says, the man went away sad because he had great possessions. His sin at root was seeing the money as more glorious and more of a treasure than following Jesus. And that's why he walked away an unbeliever. The question about being a Christian is not have you asked Jesus into your heart. The drug dealer down the street has asked Jesus into his heart, okay? The, the, people all over the place who are lost have asked Jesus into their heart. That's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for, has, the heart, has your heart been transformed to where Jesus used to be bland, dull, lifeless, and boring, a historical figure of some importance but not practically significant to your daily life? And now, have your eyes been opened? Has your heart been opened to treasure Jesus? 
to, to exult in Jesus, to delight in and to honor the Lord Jesus. Has that happened in your heart and life? Or do you walk away sad because you've got other things that you care more about in, the, in your heart and in your life? <clears throat> Let's look here at the parable of the pearl. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Real quick, pearls in the ancient world were far more valuable than they are today because divers were far more rare. Okay, they talk about how they would try to get pearls back then, and it was a life-risking sort of thing. To have a lot of pearls was unbelievably, it was like having diamonds today. It was just like it was the top shelf uh, for the people of that time. And this man went on a journey for the pearl of great price. What's the difference of these two parables? The difference is in the first parable, a man stumbled upon the treasure. What's the difference? In the second parable, a man was searching for the pearl. But in both stories, they found what they were looking for, or they, they found one he wasn't looking for. They found what they wanted, and they gave up everything to have their treasure. So here's an application I think you can make here. Some people spend time agonizing in their sin and knowing that they need a Savior, but they don't quite know how to know Christ. And I won't tell his story, but Spurgeon, we've talked about, spent about five years agonizing in his sin, knowing he was lost, but not sure how to truly know and believe in the Lord. And he was radically converted on that uh, snowy morning in 1850. But let me mention another one, because some people, it happens all of a sudden. And let me just mention, I've told his story before, I'll just make it brief here. R.C. Sproul, who we love, I'll just tell very briefly a significant part of his testimony. His father, who he loved, had died. He used to see his father read the Bible daily. His father had had a stroke, a couple of strokes, and had died when he was at the end of, I think in high school, right around there. R.C. moved away to college, uh, Youngstown, and in Ohio, and he's he's on campus in this college, and uh, he wants to make his way to some bars in September of 1957. So he and his friend get in the car, and they're going to go drive to a bar, and they know that these bars, because of Youngstown's reputation, they don't check IDs. You can get in there underage, and you can drink. That's what a lot of college freshmen did. So he gets in the car, ready to go, uh, go have a party with his friend, and they check their pockets, and they're out of cigarettes. And so they both get out of the car, and they walk back into the lobby of their dorm, and they had the cigarette vending machines, that brilliant idea. You remember those? And uh, R.C. reaches up, puts a quarter in. He gets a pack of Lucky Strikes. They fall down. He pulls his pack of Lucky Strikes out, and he's about to turn to go back to his car. And he looks over, and sitting over in the corner of this little open area of the dorm, there are two young students. Well, they're, they're older. Than, they're, they're probably seniors. Or they're about four years older than R.C., and they're over there. He recognizes one of them is the star of the football team. So you immediately, <clears throat> you kind of, you want to look like you're not up to no good. And the, 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 the football star says, hey, what are y'all doing? I'm like, uh, you know, nothing. We're not up to anything. So they walk over. To the, he goes, come on over here. They go over and sit down at this table. The football star and his friend are having a Bible study in the dorm. Talk about something that feels small and insignificant. They're just having a Bible study in the lobby of a dorm. Little do they know R.C. Sproul's 50-year ministry, almost 60-year ministry is going to flow out of this little Bible study. They're sitting there, and they they sit down. R.C. and his friend start talking, and R.C. said, I I had known for several years that I was a sinner, but I wasn't searching for God. I was just, I I wanted to go numb myself. He said, they took the Bible in the book of Ecclesiastes. Some of you know this. And the the guy, the football star, turned his Bible around and said, read this verse. I don't know why he picked this verse. It wasn't John 3.16. He picked this verse for evangelism. It was in Ecclesiastes, I think it's chapter 11, verse 2 or 3. I'm going to get that reference wrong. It says, (laughs) this verse is amazing. Where a tree falls in the forest, where it falls, there it lies. 
That's the, that's the verse. So the guy, the guy slides the Bible across to R.C. R.C. says he reads the verse. He says, under the, the work of the Holy Spirit, he said he immediately fell under conviction. And he said he saw himself like that tree. His life was, was apart from God. It was dead spiritually, lying on the ground, rotting. And R.C. said, he said, I think to this day I'm the only person in church history who was converted by that verse in Ecclesiastes. Uh, and then his, yeah, so that's probably true. But he said, this is what R.C. did. After an hour of talking about the Bible and the, them presenting the gospel, R.C. said he was absolutely wrecked over his sin. He goes up into his dorm room. He leaves the, he doesn't go to the bar. He goes up to his dorm room. He walks into his dorm. He doesn't even turn the lights on. It's, this is now late at night, maybe 11 o'clock at night. He gets down by himself on his knees next to his bed and he asks God to forgive him of his sins. He says, God, I know that I am a sinner. He says, basically, I don't know much, but I need you to forgive me of my sins. Please forgive me. And R.C. said, he experienced that moment, God's transcendent forgiveness. He experienced the sweet nearness of the grace of Christ. And this is what he said. He said, I didn't understand almost anything doctrinally, but I knew I was a sinner, and I knew Jesus was a Savior, and I called out to him in faith. And he said, when I stood back up on my feet in my dorm I was justified before God. I was in the right before God. And then what happened? He suddenly had a voracious appetite for God's word. And he read the entire Bible in the next two weeks. Now, don't judge yourself by that standard, okay? But he read the entire Bible in the next couple of weeks. He'd never read the Bible in his life. He read the Bible in two weeks. He could not get enough of the Bible. And his life began to change, his major change. And then he got into theology, philosophy, and then his ministry with Ligonier has gone for so many decades and is still influencing people across the world. What happened? He was not looking for anything that night except for a pack of cigarettes and a bar. And did the Lord have other plans in his sovereignty? And did all of a sudden he stumble upon a treasure? And was his whole life transformed? Yes. So whether someone is searching for a time in their sin or whether someone all of a sudden is converted, both, Jesus is illustrating here, can come to know the true Savior and can be forgiven and uh, transformed. This last point will be brief. Uh, Point number three. The kingdom of heaven has often been too easily rejected. Look with me at the response of Jesus' hometown. I think this is Nazareth here. Uh, Verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, I do think this is Nazareth, not Capernaum, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. I'll just wrap up on this point. There are a lot of reasons people give for why they take offense at Jesus and they walk away from the Christian faith and they walk away from church and they walk away from sound doctrine. I want you to ask a question here. Whenever you are tempted, if, if maybe a few people here in this room, I don't know, maybe you're tempted to just walk away. I want you to examine the reasons you might give for walking away from Jesus. I find the reasons are always, because of who Christ is, of course, but the reasons are always, I think, misguided. Think about them. When someone says, I'm leaving Jesus because I knew some terrible Christians when I was growing up, that happens. 
I can tell you stories of people I know and how they've been treated in churches and how they've been treated by a youth pastor or a pastor or some interim or whatever it might be. Are there horror stories of how Christians have been treated by other, Christi- by other professing Christians in the world? Yes, but I want, I want to beg you. I don't want to minimize that. that I want to, the Lord Jesus would call that pure evil when someone in the name of Christ abuses the position of authority and does something wicked to someone. If you see a hypocrite in the church, someone who sings loud on Sunday and then acts a completely different way through the week, I want you to know the Lord Jesus is offended by that. That does not represent the biblical Jesus. It does not represent what God teaches. Don't ever, I'm begging you, don't walk away from Jesus because you can name hypocrites in the church. Jesus could name them too. He's aware. He will have the last say one day. And I'll just, I'll just make a point here. Jesus was crucified by religious hypocrites. He's not on their team. And don't say, because I know hypocrites, therefore I want to get rid of Jesus. That is not a sound judgment. The Father will not say on final judgment, oh, you knew a hypocrite in the church? Okay, that justifies you rejecting my son. He will say, no, I did not say trust in the hypocrite. I said trust in Jesus. Examine the reasons why we might have for rejecting Jesus. Here, it was, we knew him growing up. We we knew his mom and dad growing up. It can't be the Messiah. We, we, We grew up with him. It can't be him. That is an absurd reason to reject Jesus. And there are many Uh, very bad reasons to reject Christ. And I would beg you, don't lose Jesus, the treasure, for some reason that is not actually connected to who the person of Christ really is. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, I I would ask for, for anyone within the sound of my voice right now who in this moment would say, I just don't know where I stand spiritually. I think I know that the right answers, that we're saved by faith, not by works, that we're saved by Christ, not by ourselves. We might say the Bible is your word, it's inspired, but deep down, our affections may be knit to the world more than Christ. We might see how our kids turn out or how whether we get the degree we want in college or postgraduate school is more valuable or the job more valuable or money more valuable or whatever it might be, a reputation more of a treasure than Jesus. God, I pray that even now, even as we sing to close this service, God, I pray that you would work in our hearts, that you would weaken our grasp on false idols and gods and saviors that cannot save. Show us how empty and futile those gods are and increase our vision of Jesus, that we would be absolutely stunned by the value of what's been right in front of us this whole time, that we would be amazed at the absolute beauty and glory and goodness and loving kindness of Jesus, and that we would say with Paul, I will count everything as loss compared to the value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Do that, Lord, in our hearts, even now. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.